Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast on April 11th, 2016, the Tax Avoidance Panamania edition. I am Adam Quinn, the senior lecturer, not the senior lecturer, a senior lecturer. I think no, I've, I've no made Adam, the yeah. senior lecturer. <laughs> I've accorded myself the definite article, radical promotional <laughs> stuff. Uh, a senior lecturer in international politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham here in England. Joined as usual, although it's been some time, so long, I'm joined by Cristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. The Hello. Birmingham how would Rita feel about that? Um, I yeah, am welcome. well. Thank you very much. It's Lovely good to, to see be you back. Hard I have seen you in the meantime. Faces. You have seen me in the meantime, not in our official podcast capacities. I have missed you dearly, both of you, three of you. But uh, I've been listening to the podcast. Full of like frustrated opinions about the EU and about the American election. Full while of admiration about your opinions with the, with regards to the EU and the uh, American elections. Well, we, we welcome so admiration in, uh, in any and all circumstances. <laughs> listen, uh, listen wisely, those out there in the public. Uh, and also, uh, it's been less of a long time, although we also missed you during the EU referendum chatter. Uh, Professor of International Politics and Editor of EA uh, Worldview, Scott Lucas. How are you doing? Scott. Thank you. Well, my, my heart has been warmed so much by this reunion that I'm in an unexpectedly great mood uh, as we embark upon this Panamanian edition. Yeah, I mean, the, the trains are wrecked at New Street, so I took a walk along the canal to get here, and it's outside term time. The atmosphere in this room is positively convivial. Oh, fantastic. City going straight to hell, but we're still here. <laughs> and that's all that matters, <laughs> yes. listeners. Anyway, we've got the band back together, uh, but we're going to be keeping one thing in common with the last couple of special editions, and that is that this time there is one story so big, huge, so big, uh, that we simply have to turn over both parts of the show to it. That story is the stonking journalistic expose last week, fueled by a leak of the private files of Panamanian law firms specialising in helping the global elite, including, it turns out, many people suspiciously close to national political leaders, uh, keep their money offshore, safe from the taxman and from prying eyes. Lots to discuss, including both the political fallout and the policy issues raised, and we're going to do that in two parts, focusing first on the UK and then branching out to the wider, wider world. I, for one, am looking forward to it. Mossack Fonseca is not a Formula One driver, nor is it a premium dessert wine. It is in fact a Panama-based law firm with offices in more than 40 countries whose primary function was, is, not sure how their business model is looking at the moment, to help wealthy clients set up shell companies in various tax havens while keeping their identity on the down low. Unfortunately for both the firm and those rich people, 2.4 terabytes of their confidential documents, I don't know what that means, but I get the feeling it's lot. A lot of documents were leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, leading last week to an explosion of information revealing the involvement of prominent figures in the stashing of wealth overseas. Edward Snowden, eat your heart out. This has been referred to by me, if nobody else, can I patent this, as WikiLeaks for the offshore finance trade. We'll talk soon about the implications of this farther afield, but first to Britain. Here, the winner of most embarrassment achieved prize was Prime Minister David Cameron. Uh, his father, now deceased, was revealed to have run the amusingly named Blair Moore Holdings. Uh, and no connection or no relation, which facilitated many wealthy individuals in discreetly deploying their funds beyond 
beyond the reach of British taxation. This revelation led to a drawn-out inquisition of the PM over several days about his own family's finances, including his past ownership of a share of his father's fund. This culminated in his publication of a summary of his tax returns since 2009, which included the irresistibly headline-worthy nugget that his mother gave him a gift, and I'm putting uh, major inverted commas around that, of £200,000 after her husband's death as a way of keeping down his inheritance tax bill in due course. Well, who hasn't been there, uh, people? So, a couple of things. One is to say that there is a huge difference, huge, huge, as uh, Donald Trump would say, between tax avoidance, which is using all means available within the law to minimise one's tax bill, and tax evasion, which is criminally concealing money that legally should be taxed. What we're discussing here is tax avoidance. So no one, least of all us listeners, is accusing anyone in the UK of doing anything illegal. The second thing to say is that Britain now appears to be governed by a class stratum of rich people who regard as standard operating behaviour to use Baroque financial instruments to keep their wealth out of the hands of the tax man. So, uh, not cool, really, that second part, is it, is it, Cristala? Are you uh, uh, feeling a sense of deep existential pessimism about your life choices that you are now, that you've placed yourself under the jurisdiction of this uh, corrupt upper echelon? <laughs> Definitely not cool, Adam. Um, I find this discussion really interesting on a lot of fronts. As a foreigner, as an outsider to this country, the idea that uh, this kind of joint myth that we have, that everyone is equally accountable and that we're all in this together, lives side by side with this strange country that uh, that has gotten down to an art form the idea of hierarchy and social and economic... What is that thing Not called? equality. Not equality. Structure. Yeah, the other thing. Gotten down to an art form, the idea of like a thousand years of social and, and economic inequality, right? Mm. And, the, and the quietness of it in the UK. So the idea that this, this explosion comes as a shock, for me, is really strange because it's patently obvious. And what, and what I smile at is, is the, the kind of daily, um, daily efforts by, by, by David Cameron to kind of grasp back some parts of his reputation when he talks about very clearly um, implementing legislation against tax uh, evasion. Um, and that's the really bad stuff. That's the really bad stuff, but it's not the stuff that is of concern, as you've pointed out, right? Mm. So there's this effort to split this discussion. So we're going to we're going to implement legislation for tax evasion, but offshore, uh, offshore banking, what? Offshore, offshore finances? Not sure. We're we're kind of thirty grand, forty grand. It wasn't that much. Two hundred grand for a mum. That's okay too. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've just discovered thirty thousand pounds <laughs> that I've forgotten I had in, in some account or other. It's you know. My mum bought me a. <laughs> Book, you know, a book, <laughs> not two hundred grand. Well, yeah, two hundred in her case. Thirty grand was the shares that he sold in his father's fund. Two hundred grand was the uh, inheritance tax preemption, yes. preempting gift. So, so to get back to kind of the, the the first thing of interest for me is that what this makes clear is the fact that particular legislation exists in this country and globally, and we'll talk about that to protect a certain circle from the inconvenience of adhering to general norms that a percentage of what one earns, it is redistributed towards the maintenance of public goods and, and structures, right? So, so this kind of myth that we have, that people are equally accountable, is being very, very forthrightly put into the public kind of forum. At the same time, 
um, that, that this government is talking about, um, in, uh, talking about dismantling the NHS, is talking about dismantling benefits for poor people. So mm. it holds up what's interesting and what, um, what of a lot of the journalism is about is that it, it holds up this very clear mirror, uh, as you pointed out in the introduction, about the discrepancy between uh, the haves and the have-nots, the have-nots in this mm. society. So there's that, right? Um, that's the first not cool that's thing. the first not cool for me and the first like not cool slash pretty obvious has been happening for a while alright let's see how people talk about that and frankly if that makes more people pissed off that makes me happy I guess the second thing for me is the collapse of so, so personality politics and the EU debate and I guess the idea that David Cameron, who is being so wholeheartedly discredited and deservedly so, uh, has also embodied a lot of the kind of staying in the EU discussion. So I wonder what the impact of that is on um, on his credibility to lead a, to lead a, an, a convincing kind of group of people talking about the merits of staying in the EU. Because mm. that's what he's for, basically. Yeah. That is so. I mean, for whatever reason, and God knows it's lost on me, uh, he seems to be regarded as pleasant and charismatic yeah. and competent by a wider spectrum of people than most of his colleagues in, in, in the Conservative Party. Are. Poor, poor comparisons, though, don't you think? Yeah, it's not a tough league, no. <laughs> uh, but he does seem to he managed to win an election uh, very narrowly, and as a result, he seems to be regarded as... Uh, having a Midas touch. Yes, uh, and a credible human being, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm going to uh, weigh in on this before I hand over to Scott, because I've, I've kind of been waiting. To, in a way, I've kind of tired myself out before I got here, because I, like, I want to go off on one <laughs> so impassionedly. But you've done it so, I've, many, I've times it so many times already. It's like my head that I don't know they have the, en- the energy <laughs> left. So I'm going to like try and Barack Obama here, <laughs> like uh, breathe deep, take a step back, and then say, okay, let's, let's put this in. In, in some kind of context. Like, the most charitable things, I guess, one can say about David Cameron's situation, if we're going to focus on him, mm. are, first of all, that, you know, this is, is something his father primarily did, the offshore thing. So David Cameron is rich as a result of uh, his father's activities, uh, and he inherited some uh, some money from that. But uh, embarrassing and awkward as that is, it's not primarily something that he did, it's something that he has failed to comprehensively disavow, and many of us wouldn't want to do that necessarily, unless our father was Robert Maxwell or some like full, full, full-scale criminal. Um, so one could say, one could say that. One could also say, as some people have said over the course of the analysis of this, that you know both of these things: a, the company that that his father set up overseas, and secondly, this avoidance of uh, of inheritance tax through a sort of gift from an elderly yeah. parent. These are not unusual things. These are things that were going on on a routine basis that lots of people do, and the reaction of a certain kind of person seeing this news is, oh, this is so unfair that David Cameron's getting such a hard time about it. Uh, uh, you know, lots of people do this all the time. And therefore, my, my analysis basically comes down to this. It's, it's, it's not so much that David Cameron has done something uniquely odd or unusual or outrageous, it's that it's kind of outrageous that it is not unique or yeah. outrageous yeah. to do the kind of things yeah. that, that that he's that he's done because like it's 
it's it's it's so problematic. You know, it's the, these instruments that I get the feeling, uh, and there was some discussion. Sorry, you want you want to breathing deeply? I am breathing deeply. I want to interrupt you for a moment because because in addition to what you're saying, there is the deception of of public politics, the public face of politics, mm. and David Cameron for me embodies that in his statement that he made to the press, one of the several, one of the first ones, when he said, you know what, you know, I have my salary as prime minister, I have two, ha- I have a house, yeah. I have some. Savings. He has two. He forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have some savings, and that's basically it. And it's an and it's a very simple and very easy argument to make to construct this bridge between him and everyone else that says I'm just a normal guy. And that's mm. and that's the myth that 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 he and people who he represents, a type of person that he represents, work on. We're mm. just like you. Right, because because when they talk about when people talk about things like inheritance tax, when people talk about various kinds of tax, I think they. Uh, the, I'm talking about major conservative politicians here, they play on a false perception amongst people who are hearing those stories that like inheritance tax kicks in on the first pound and like takes half of everything. And so they're imagining themselves and their little all being handed down to their children after a lifetime of striving and weighing, I should be allowed to leave something, tax might not get it. But these things only kick in at a really high level. So you're paying no inheritance tax on very substantial amounts of money. It's only if you're a millionaire basically, that any of this is remotely relevant to you. So I feel like a lot of what goes on is an effort to appeal to people who have some but not that much money in the middle classes based on a conflation between their situation and the situation of millionaires and multimillionaires who are, uh, you know, trying to avoid paying a slice of the very top end of, mm. of that income. So that's annoying. <laughs> that, that, not that, cool. That, not that's, cool. Not, that's not cool. Let's have a conversation about what this is really about. Um, but secondly, it, it is the idea of it, it becoming a bigger problem than it, than, it, than it has been. Like These instruments, I guess, used to be the preserve of a relatively limited number of people uh, who had large amounts of money, who engaged in sort of geographically hard to pin down kind of activities like hedge funds, etc. Um, it seems like what's been happening over time is that they've bled more and more uh, into the rest of society. A larger number of people are doing uh, these kinds of things, uh, talking about offshore finance mm. here, but also tax avoidance of a variety of, uh, of other kinds. The share of the global economy that is made up of this kind of money is going up. The share of our national economy, because it's something that we apparently specialise in, it's like one of the few things we still do, is uh, is not insubstantial uh, that, that, that is made up of this. And... Uh, you know, consequently, there is a very real danger that we will end up in a point where ordinary people get a clear-eyed look at the fact that very large amounts of money under the control of the richest people in society are completely legally sitting outside of the tax system while they're being uh, bled to pay for what remains of our public expenditures, and they will decide in the way that people in you know some countries like Greece, for example, decide to do. Well, I'm a mug here. I'm the one who's paying everything at the sticker price through the tax system. I'm getting milked, while people massively richer than me are talking about how oh we're all in this together. Yeah. You know, no one would no no one hates making these cuts to public services more, more than, than me with a heavy heart. Uh, but by the way, I'm also a multi-millionaire who takes every legal step possible to make his tax bill lower proportion 
disproportionately than everybody else who's just got a salary and a, and a semi-detached somewhere in suburbia. And then we end up in a position where you know, all of society starts to regard it as the only rational thing to do to avoid paying tax if you can in any way uh, circumvent the system, which is more difficult for people with less money to do, but it's just... It's the terrible, terrible message that is sent when you are in charge of running the tax and governance system of a country, when you say, anything I can legally do to deprive this system of my money is entirely fair game. Like, that's, that's not cool. But, it, I mean, when you talk about the head of the, head of the structure... That, that that represents all of this. You also need to I- extend this debate to, what's his name, Edward Troop, um, the head of the tax revenue. Oh, HMRC, yeah, yeah, who yeah. used to work for one of these companies. Who, has, who in the late 1990s said that taxation was extortion, right? So so let's look at the community of people and their, and their perspectives on this. Hmm. Scott, let's look at this community of people and their perspectives <laughs> on this. Oh, wow. So much layer upon layer. Um, so I needed sort of an iconic moment to get into what is happening here, again, as an outsider in Britain. And it came with the BBC this weekend <laughs> in this wonderful BBC way with this swirly controversy around, decided that its headline story was that the Archbishop of Canterbury <laughs> suddenly had discovered, discovered that his daddy was Winston Churchill's <laughs> private secretary. It's and spent I, all weekend on this. Yeah, and I, just to add a sort of a colour note to that, I remember uh, when the story first broke, it said, tests reveal the Archbishop's father is like this person. And the way they phrased it made it sound like we'd all been in suspense. It was genuinely as if the nation had been on tenterhooks thinking, geez, we don't know who this guy's dad is. How are we going to find out? Let's go through the options. Like Jack the Ripper's identity had been revealed. A hundred-year mystery. I had never heard any whisper of this story before and suddenly as you say all over the front page while this much more important story like what are we going to do pass new legislation that that, what are the implications of this important breaking news bbc i don't know about the legislation but bbc just shouting look over look over there (laughs) and this is while thousands of protesters were marching in front of number 10 trying to get cameron to come out so they could tell him to his face to resign I mean, at one level, this is a story, and Cristal absolutely nailed it, which is a hypocrisy surrounding individuals, which is that, you know, David Cameron came in and, and in an echo of that message, which came from George Bush, of all people, said, compassionate conservatism. Yeah. We, 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 we're there with you. We're all part of the same Britain. One nation Britain. Remember yeah. all that? Yeah, we don't want to be the nasty party in nasty. Theresa May's phrase. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. We're all, and it's like, no, no, no. You're not one nation Britain. We know that you got the better houses. We know that you send your kids to private schools. We know that you got private health care if you need it at a time when there's pressure on social services. We know that. But the hypocrisy here is, is that we all play along and that, you know, we have our British institutions. And so Camry could play into this, and then this, this just suddenly erupted. And I didn't think it would get this big. Uh, we'll talk later about on the international scale. I thought that's where it would happen. I didn't think it was going to get big in Britain. But I think it tapped into, it's when that hypocrisy gets exposed. And what I thought about is, is that on a completely different issue, but in a similar way, 20 years ago, where the Tories got done for preaching family values all over the shop. Yeah. Oh, this and was then, uh, Back to Basics the, under John Major. Under which, John uh, he probably st- every, every interview he does probably still has a 10-minute segment devoted to that slogan and its fallout. Yeah, he's devoted back to basics while his 
Cabinet ministers were all getting back to basics with dominatrixes. While they were uh, snogging 17-year-old girls in public parks, I seem to remember in one case. That's correct. Yeah. Or wearing Chelsea football Covered strips. themselves in yeah. glory. Yeah, gl- happy days. Happy days. The EU's back, scandal's back, Tory government. Oh, this, this, this no. uh, you know, first is tragedy, then is farce, right? And it's where you get those moments that something I can't explain this about this, not just British, probably English psyche, this wonderful country, yeah. this section of the country's psyche, which just taps into, oh, now we'll get angry. Right about it, and well, this is it, Cameron. You're, you're reaping it because, um, and there's more to come in personalities. I mean, George Osborne, uh, the chancellor, who has now said, "Oh, well, he says, well, maybe I'll have to file my tax return." Yeah, but I'm not sure. Treasury Treasury sources have sent <laughs> signals, or one of those like three yeah. stages away from actual <laughs> facts stories that gets no. reported. Sometimes I love those ones. Yeah, the BBC understands yeah. kind yeah. of kind of language. Breaking the yeah. BBC understands. Yeah. Well, see, in this case, the BBC does know who George Osborne's daddy is, <laughs> and they that George Osborne's daddy and his company haven't paid taxes. For, for seven years, yeah. they haven't paid any corporation tax, and that's what he'll have to to own up to if we get full returns. Uh, so it it circles around various individuals. Although Boris Johnson is keeping his head low and hoping, yeah, he was. Uh, there was quite a funny <laughs> scene of him, him yeah, being being harassed as he walked down the street by. <laughs> I think it was the BBC correspondent wanting him to say whether he believed it was morally wrong to avoid tax. And uh, to say that he was disinclined to say that would be an understatement. Going off to see his accountant to find out exactly. <laughs> yeah, where so, do those telegraph salaries go? Huh? Yeah. So we, it, it works at 11 years, but I think it taps into, and this gets into, into Cristela's argument about structures and, and hierarchies. It, and this is where I think it might get really interesting, is that this is a story about structures that have been set up for many, many decades, which precisely legitimizes the way that finance Absolutely. moves in this country. Absolutely. Now, where it gets interesting is, is that there are, um, uh, to give you one example from the Muslim Fonseca case, there are British banks which are implicated not only in, in activities which may be far more than tax avoidance. So allegedly, there may be, for example, sanctions evasion, uh, tapped into some of the British institutions. Uh, one of the l- banks which has the largest client list named in the Masa Fonseca uh, files, but for some reason BBC hasn't mentioned this, it's called, is it Coots Bank? C-O-U-T-T. I'm not about to name anybody, Scott. They have clients. They have clients. There. Now, mm-hmm. we don't say the clients did anything illegal, but this is like the elite bank in London, mm-hmm. one of the elite banks with high-end clients. Now, at the very least, the idea of moving money around for tax avoidance is something that British financial institutions do. Mm. But to take it a step further, uh, this is a case where you have got British dependencies, which for decades have legally sheltered money, like the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, uh, the tax schemes of Jersey and Guernsey, and for decades, the British government has avoided doing anything to equalize tax codes. And they've offered all types of legal excuses, all types of financial excuses. If you are really serious and if you want to deal with the hypocrisy, you deal with that fundamental inequality. Now, we probably say, well, it hasn't happened in the past. Why should it now? Just one point to kick into this, which goes, people have just been generally, without putting their finger with it, pissed off for years because... We know everything almost went belly up in 2008 because of the financial crisis. Mm. And British financial institutions that were supposed to be solvent in the midst of that crisis were seen to be anything but. And the government stepped in. And bailed them out. And bailed them out. 
Now, that's making it clear in a sense that after a certain point, their problems are our problems. Yeah. yeah. Now, the question is whether we keep doing the bailouts, both the moral bailouts as well as the financial bailout, or whether we get a space where someone actually says we are going to do something significant about this, uh, whether it's through the pirate party in Iceland or some type of alternative that we suddenly find on our doorstep here in Britain. Hmm. And uh, we, we've got to wrap up this segment, although we get to continue a lot of the, the themes in the second one. But the last thing I, I just want to say quickly is that um, you know the, the weird part about this is that David Cameron has made kind of, and his government have made kind of a point of talking about this mm. issue quite a bit. Like mm. they they have you know, one of the things they can do is they can point uh, now that this has all come out to the many many times they have given speeches and proposed conferences and talked about the importance of cracking down on tax avoidance. But this just highlights the enormous distinction, lest we forget, between talking about stuff and doing That's stuff, the right? Beauty of that it. they have said so many times they need to do this, uh, that now that it turns out they really haven't, and indeed sometimes they've been an obstructive force within the EU, that, that it is, uh, uh, you know, the real test is now going to be, clearly David Cameron's going to come out again and say, this is probably not a good thing, we're going to try and crack down on this, and then everyone will move on, and the news agenda will move on, and then we'll come back at a certain point and see, has anyone done anything about this stuff? And if the answer is yes, well, then, you know, something's changed and we can take it seriously. If the answer is no, well, then we know that, you know, whatever the defense mechanisms are for this social order of ours, uh, they're clearly strong enough to, to take a scandal even to this size. Yeah, but one sleight of hand that was there, which points to this question between reality and a bit of hypocrisy. Why was everybody talking about cracking, cracking down these havens? It wasn't to get companies to be responsible, et cetera. Cameron made that stand because the whole question was whether terrorists yeah. were mm. moving money around into these havens. He wasn't doing it to deal with the issues that we've been talking about. Mm. Of course, he's not going to say that now. He's going to say it was being responsible. Well, Okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to come right back to that in the next segment. Mm-hmm. Well, we in the UK haven't been the only ones who've learned something new about the finances of our political leaders this week. Also included in the revelations was the news that people close to Russian President Vladimir Putin... Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, good name, and Iceland PM, wish me well here, Sigmundur Gunlaugsson, had all used Mossack Fonseca to park millions or billions of dollars in funds or purchase property overseas. So had multiple members uh, of the Chinese Politburo. That Icelandic PM has since stepped down. Uh, he has sort of one of those, I resign, I haven't really resigned type wobbles, but he certainly isn't in the job, and I wouldn't expect uh, him to be back anytime soon. Uh, the others have met with rev- the revelations with silence, dismissal, or in Putin's case, Kel Surprise, cries of foreign conspiracy. Uh, the revelation that certain foreign leaders might be corrupt isn't likely to rock many people's worlds to their foundations. Still, having the specifics laid out does take it from a safe assumption to a documented set of actions. It also reminds us that Western countries and companies, uh, you mentioned this a moment ago, Scott, uh, not least the UK, which has many former imperial overseas territories counted among the tax havens of the world, rather than being paragons of virtue, are in fact up to their necks in complicity with this sort of thing. So, Scott, what do you want to talk about first? The Icelandic PM, Russia, China, so much to choose from here. Take, uh, set your target and have at it. It got to one point 
this weekend that <laughs> while the BBC was worried about the Archbishop of Canterbury's daddy breaking breaking <laughs> the Brookings the Brookings Institute one oh, of the renowned think tanks in the United States this. decided to run an article by someone who said <laughs> that this was all a this was all a Russian conspiracy <laughs> that the and his his idea always says in fact because President Putin probably has twenty billion dollars hmm. that he stashed away but only two billion has been exposed yeah the fact that it's so clearly against their interests is what makes it so clever it's so clever. Would be, they would be I, exp- I, I admire that logic to be <laughs> frank so yeah. in other words so they'd hidden ninety percent of their ill-gotten gains while being able to point to the Ukraine and to I guess Iceland was part of it somehow mm-hmm. Russia wanted to bring down the Icelandic government I was like oh my god. Yeah. So, what that guy, is that guy on like a retainer from RT or something? Because that'll, yeah. that'll, that'll be perfect in a way because it creates the impression, uh, uh, you know, that somehow this is part of it. The Russians are not the victims of some leak here, that they are so competent that even a situation like this that devastates their president's <laughs> reputation publicly is part of some long game he's playing. His master strategy to publicly uh, expose his own, his own corrupt finances uh, just to show that he's, uh, you know, nothing happens without his say so. And so it had gotten to the point where if we can make this so muddled that we can make it like a gigantic Moscow conspiracy or on the other hand a CIA George Soros conspiracy yes, which always, always, always people will get so confused that eventually everybody will get off the hook mm-hmm. I mean in a way it's you know it's like the scene from remind me of the scene earlier from you know, Casablanca when we're talking about who might be involved and so on and when one of the most wonderful characters in cinema the, uh, the French uh, the French policeman played by Clon Rains Louis he says ah oh, he says I am shocked. I am shocked to find out there's gambling in this establishment. And someone comes up behind him and says, you're winning, sir, right? <laughs> now, will it be more than that and will people pay the piper? Well, Iceland, we have a specific case in a small country where um, there's been such an uproar that the prime minister is effectively gone. And you could seriously have the pirate party coming into power. In this country, I think Britain will have a bit of soul-searching, or at least we'll go through it. We don't know where it'll wind up. Yeah, we haven't seen it in a while. We're going to have to try and right. find that soul. Yeah. Yeah. But where the rubber hits the road, I think, is going to be where you go beyond uh, what is tax avoidance to activities which are clearly uh, sanctions evasion. And you mentioned some of it in the introduction, but just a quick reminder is that um, uh, the Syrian uh, regime moved money allegedly with the complicity of Masek Penseca and with a British bank, uh, and they did this in violation of U.S. sanctions. Uh, there are firms that are named who are Iranian firms uh, who were moving money to evade U.S.-led sanctions, uh, including moving oil revenues. There are firms connected to North Korea that were shuttling money. So we're talking about like the worst of the worst in some of those respects, and these folks were able basically to evade the sanctions regime to some extent with the help of not their own evil institutions, but with these structures that we mm. set up in the West. Now, that then raised beyond you know, casting fingers at any particular leader or whatever, the, the real question that on the one hand we have this idea that we're supposed to maintain international law, we're supposed to crack down on terrorism, and yet you have an international financial structure that's undermining those efforts. That will be the test, I think, uh, for a number of governments and a number of institutions, including the UN, if it yeah. means what it means regarding uh, money laundering yeah. and evasion of crimes, sometimes war crimes, through doing this, uh, European institutions, uh, whether they actually will deal with this, because although it is a grand question 
of money used to support illegal activities being moved back, it comes back to national institutions that have supported this. Mm. Do I think anything will be done? All I can tell you is I had a student, a very talented student, who 20 years ago was doing a postgraduate dissertation on tax havens reform. I thought it was great, and I thought at the time, great, but nothing's going to happen out of it. 20 years later, here we are. Mm. That is bleak. Yeah, Cristela. Um, I think that we're talking about uh, about three levels. We're talking about institutional reform, national institutional reform. We're talking about financial reform. And then we're talking about will the revolution come at the popular level? And so, you know, what I wonder, what is, what is, what is interesting for me is not just will institutional reform happen and... And the transparency now of this this absolute corruption um, of autocratic genocidal regimes in many cases and our own states to some extent. Uh, But also how are people at the popular level going to respond to this country by country? Iceland has responded very quickly, but I I get the feeling that that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem, I mean, I read to go to the, the one who broke the headlines first, Vladimir Putin, yeah. you know, the reasons why he's not about to be overthrown anytime yeah. soon are, yeah. are, are dense and manifold. But, you know, you get the impression that this is something he would prefer not to have happened. But the idea, the idea that it's going to bring the mob to his front door and, you know, he'll, he'll be gone in the morning, you would have to be very naive about the dynamics of international and domestic politics to think that's happening. Yeah. Oh. I... Yeah, I don't think, expect you to see anything happen out of those countries. I do think, let me put this out to you because it hasn't really been mentioned, except in a, again in the, a diluted conspiracy way that diverts. And that is, there are very few U.S. institutions or U.S. companies that are named in the Mosaic Penseca papers. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, for the, the 10 4 cases out there, that's because this is a CIA conspiracy. In fact, I suspect it's because the U.S. government and U.S. authorities have sort of make clear to companies, really putting your money in this particular firm, this particular legal firm, probably isn't a smart thing to do mm. when we're pressing sanctions on so many different levels. Mm. In other words, the U.S., and I'm not saying this to make them the angels, but the U.S. in a way had an interest in connecting the sanctions legislation to a responsible financial system, which at least kept it out of this particular country. Yeah, and, and there, there, was, there was a, a free trade treaty with Panama that went through back in about 2011 that did include some not enormously uh, burdensome, but some new regulations regarding openness and transparency. And therefore, if you were within the United States, maybe that put that country on your radar as not the optimal place to do this kind of thing. I think so. And I think there was a case, and it's sort of faded now, but if I remember the case, that... that the long, you know, legendary secret accounts in Switzerland that there was finally pressure put on Swiss institutions mm. uh, in, because of basically dirty money going back to World War II mm. to open up uh, some level of transparency on accounts. And so there was limited reform there. And I think that's, that's the type of basically specific issue yeah. where you get some movement. I think... Um I think uh, uh, I, I listened to there's an episode of the Weeds podcast, Vox's uh, sort of policy podcast this week, which I commend to everyone to listen to. Which I mean, just in general, but also specifically on this issue, where Ezra Klein uh, uh, and, and Matt Iglesias, especially, were, were getting into to this question. They talked about some of the stuff we've talked about before, which is that you know things that used to be a minority sport are mm. now becoming routinized and at a much larger scale, etc. But but they also put their, their their finger on like what I think is a. Uh, a very important point of understanding this, which is 
is about will, you know, the will to do something about this. That, you know, there have been various, you know, we, we talk about globalization as being this set of forces that simply can't be contained. Um, you know, that, that if you don't do, uh, uh, that if you do something to crack down on the forces of capital moving around, then it'll just go some other yeah. route. You'll end up losing out. Uh, that these intangible services, this abstract thing that is money, there's no way that you can really control it. So it's, it's you know, it was a structural phenomenal problem here. But there have been various instances in, you know, really lived experience where when something really seems to matter to the big, powerful countries of the world, they can... You know, they they can make it it, it happen. Um, you know, you talked, for example, about about uh, you know when there have been when terrorism, for example, becomes a concern about you know people clearly no major government was going to be fine with turning a blind eye after September the 11th to the channeling of funds for terrorism through these institutions. So governments got serious about uh, what you would do if it really mattered to you if this goes on. You know, went round those smaller, weaker countries that you know, let's face it don't have arms and who would like, want to be able to come and go from, from these bigger, richer countries and put them to the wall and made sure that you couldn't, under pain of some serious consequences, do this kind of stuff. Or to pick another example that they used on, on, on Vox, you know, intellectual piracy. You know, they had, uh, the example they used was, you know, they had Napster, first of all, that came along and appeared to you know, undercut any ability to copyright music. Uh, and then that got shut down, so it went offshore to Sweden with the, with the Pirate Bay. And, you know, after a while, basically enough people came knocking on Sweden's door to say, not cool, can't do this, has to stop. Uh, and that, and that gets get shut down. And no, one is, no one is saying that uh, it's been possible to comprehensively solve uh, music piracy or that it's been possible to comprehensively solve the funding of terrorism, for that example. But it definitely demonstrates that if you get all of the smart people who work for a powerful government with all the resources that brings to put their heads together to say, how do we get serious and stop this? You, know, you can do quite a lot. So the big barrier to this like tax avoidance thing clearly given that that is not remotely what's been happening for some time, is that the people who run these large, powerful countries that could, if they took it seriously, adopt a similar approach, do not give an equivalent level of seriousness to the task of cracking down on, on tax avoidance. Now, and, and you know, the idea that you sometimes see in the press that, you know, you add together all the money that's offshore and you work out what the official rate of tax would be and then say, well, all this money would be available if only we brought it onshore. That's kind of fantastical. Probably you're not going to achieve, you know, achieve that because if you brought all this money back onshore, suddenly it might become apparent the tax rate's a little bit high. Uh, and, you know, you could, you could bring that down and still make, make, make vastly more money. But... We have clearly arrived at an arrangement where uh, people prefer to have those tax rates a little higher than they might be if all the money was onshore, uh, leave it to the mugs to pay it, and then everyone who knows what they're doing, which is the same people who go to dinner parties with the people who, who uh, run, uh, uh, at least until recently, both of the political parties in Britain and uh, that, are, that are important to funding presidential campaigns in both parties in the United States, that... Uh, these are not the people you want to disrupt. These are not the people you want to get in the way of. So it, it really is a, a matter of political will uh, rather than a matter of impossibility. You couldn't end it, but you could do a damn sight more to try if you wanted to. But I think it's probably going to have to come from a top-down approach, and that is, for example, uh, do we dare mention the EU? 
We're the, in the middle of the referendum here. It's talk about timing. This, the EU is not a lucky institution. No. It, in a way, it's not a lucky institution, but in a way, of course, this is a question of because it happens to have so many countries which are involved with it, if it comes up with a general code of practice to which all countries are supposed to adhere and so on, that's when you have the possibility that something significant happens, right? It's not going to happen probably on a country-by-country basis. I think the U.S. is the exception. They've got leverage. Um, but you'll see some tweaks at national level. You really are, I think, echoing your point, is you're going to have to have a concerted effort between international institutions. Because as long as, if you don't have that, you're always going to have the free riders. The individual countries, they're going to turn a blind eye. And let's remind ourselves that Mossack is a German company, German-Panamanian company. So basically that if the German government basically now has to say, well, what do we do when we have businessmen like this? So unless you deal with the free riders, we'll be coming back again and again to this. Um, that said, though, let me add one other thing that into the mix before, and that is that in the midst of these international issues where we don't know where things are going, one positive thing I found out of this this week, this is a story about 21st century journalism that amidst all the, the arguments that investigative journalism was on its way out because traditional journalism was under such pressure, diversity, it's actually about the new form of journalism. In this case, a coalition which got foundation money, support money, 80 journalists, more than 40 countries, and it shows you what can be done. Uh, this is 300 times bigger than WikiLeaks in terms of the documents that we're handling. And so it is investigative journalism that at least raises the possibility that we are discussing these issues Mm. at this level, um, which means it doesn't all go one way and everything goes hush-hush and gets swept aside. Yeah, and, and you know, that, and we, we, should, we should give kudos there for that, I guess. If anyone tells you that a free press you know, doesn't matter or, or, or indeed that a free press doesn't exist, that yeah. it's entirely corrupt or under the thumb, you know, there is a reason why a Russian uh, media conglomerate uh, or a Pakistani media conglomerate is not breaking this story. Uh, and, you know, in a way, the idea that... Uh, without wanting to get all teary-eyed and romantic, the idea that a Which bunch would of not be usual, not, not, not really my my style. Uh, the idea that you know a bunch of institutions, journalistic institutions within Britain, have been able to publish these stories and uh, lambast our uh, prime a global, minister for it. That was a global it. coalition, though. It was. Right. I, I guess I'm thinking of how it's played out specifically yeah. here. Okay. That the idea that in this country our, our, our newspapers have been able to publish this story. Uh, and give the prime minister such a hard time about it, and you know, no one's turned up dead uh, or had to hole up in a foreign embassy. Uh, tells me things I like about this country uh, and don't particularly like about about some others. Cristala, do you want to do you want to bring us home with any observations on on this? I await the the continuation of this story with bated breath. Which is the best kind of breath, uh, as, uh, as all our listeners know. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much for listening, as always. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter, at Poll Worldview. Please do that. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. I implore you, uh, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Share us on various social media platforms. Draw attention uh, to our pod, uh, to people who, who might like it too. And then they will, the next time they see you, they'll go, hey, man, that podcast you recommended... Super awesome. I'm really grateful to you. Here, have a, have a cookie. I've got a bunch. Um, 
leave us a rating or comment. That helps others discover the pod. Uh, you can also come to our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pollworldview to see uh, links to the show, other articles, things that, uh, that various people on the pod write and publish in other contexts. Our participants today have been, as always, Kristala Yakinthu. Where can people find you if they're inclined to do so, Kristala? They can find me um, when I'm not at the University of Birmingham. If they, if they, if they don't want to get a plane <laughs> ticket and come over office. here and take you down. Yeah. Office hours are... No. Mondays and Thursdays, guys, mornings. My <laughs> students seem to continuously forget this. Um, otherwise, Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. And Scott? I am on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. And, of course, always with EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, the proud partner of Political Worldview. Partnership is a good thing. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn 161. If you want a number attached to me on Facebook, but just search my name and you'll get me smiling out at you. Uh, I can be followed there. I'm also at Adam James Quinn on Twitter, although I spend less time on it. So I would go for Facebook if I were you top tip listeners. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulsis Department, Political Science and International Studies, two for the price of one, at the University of Birmingham in England. We will be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.